0: Good morning, Sun Valley Church. I'm thankful that we can be together again and dive into God's Word and see what uh, He has to say for us th- today, particularly. Uh, as you know, we're taking a short detour from our study in the book of Philippians to address some pertinent issues that uh, we think that are important to you as believers that come to Sun Valley Church and any other believers who may be watching right now. But uh, the New Testament makes it clear to us what pastors and elders should be doing and, and teaching and how to protect their flock and so forth. And the, it's all over the New Testament how this ought to happen. Uh, pastors and elders are to patiently and lovingly guide their people that God has placed under our care towards godliness, towards clear understanding of the scriptures and gospel. And so the elders of SVC are particularly concerned that you understand how to think biblically especially about the burning issues of the day and the reason that this is is that we have a mission to accomplish as Christians we've been placed on this planet to accomplish a mission to which we've been called and what is that mission well you hear it regularly here at Sun Valley Church and that is to make much of Jesus Christ and to share his saving gospel grace with all those around us that's our mission If there is anything that could potentially impede this mission or interrupt your joy, we at Sun Valley Church, the elders, pastors here, want to address it, want to speak to it. We've all been hearing and seeing things concerning the ongoing culture war that's raging around us. You can't miss it. These things could lead you into embracing something even with good intentions to not be in line with the scriptures, to not be in line with the gospel. In fact, to be a roadblock to someone understanding the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. The reason that we've decided to take this short detour from our study of Philippians is to address these things that are currently pertinent to Sun Valley Church. And we think directly relate to your effectiveness as gospel partners. And so we could in a sense say, this is a way to apply the truths of Philippians. What do gospel partners think about their current culture? Here we go. And so it's somewhat related to our study in Philippians. One thing that will help your effectiveness as a gospel partner is to examine through a biblical lens the things that you're seeing in the media today, all over, all all kinds of media, but particularly Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter where we get to communicate with one another freely. Much of what is being promoted and embraced by people claiming to be Christians is actually fundamentally undermining the gospel in a very sneaky way. Many of those who embrace and proliferate some of the present touch points in the current social conversation are unwittingly embracing and proliferating gospel roadblocks. I wanna help you recognize these things. Last week, Pastor Rick addressed some of these important things, and today I want to zero in on one of the things that he mentioned briefly. One recent comment I read in the media said, we have never had the gospel until we understand social justice. Another wrote, the gospel without social justice isn't the gospel. A third said, repentance for the American evangelical is not enough. These are Christians speaking. Are these statements true? They sound good because we all want to be just people who look out for those who are disadvantaged, who've been unfairly treated. I think every genuine Christian feels that way. This is what Jesus did, right? This is primary in his ministry, caring for the disadvantaged, caring for the hurting. And we all want to do what is right. But the question is, is social justice a part of the gospel? There are some recognizable Christians promoting this. I can tell you that Satan is alive and well and has no interest in anybody getting along, whether it's in the church or outside the church. So much of what we're seeing isn't in line with the gospel at all, but actually is in line with the philosophies that come directly from Satan himself. He wants to sow division Strife, anger, rage, discord, and he doesn't have to try too hard because our culture is made up of diverse people groups, people's ideas, diverse political views, socioeconomic strata, ethnic groups, sexes, all with different opinions. And so what better way to accomplish Satan's goals than to get the church, the ones who claim to have the answers to our society, to be bickering with one another about what's important and how to address it. So today I want you to understand that I'm speaking to the church today. I'm not entering the political conversation or addressing the culture war that rages around us. But I think coming at it from the scriptures, it will have application to each of those areas. As you know, Paul was not unaware of Satan's schemes. And in the book of Colossians in chapter two, verse eight, He addressed this very thing he said see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition why would he be concerned about that well because when you embrace worldly philosophy and empty deceit you are automatically aligning yourself in opposition to the gospel And that, of course, is Satan's goal. He wants to do everything he he can to undermine the gospel of Jesus Christ so that the many do not hear, or at least do not understand. So what is social justice? And why does thinking about it, as a gospel partner Christian, why does it matter to think about it in such ways? Social justice, of course, is not legal justice. It doesn't take place in the courts of law. Uh, It's not about the law. It's not even about divine justice, either, either for that matter. Even though God cares greatly about it, social justice, per se, doesn't appear in the Bible. God speaks about some of the elements of social justice, to be sure, but the philosophical ideas of social justice isn't addressed in Scripture, especially in connection with the Gospel. Technically, social justice is the idea that everyone has the right to upward mobility. Everyone should have equal social privilege, equal access, equal finances, equal resources. If those things don't exist for any reason, then society by nature is unjust. What we need to acknowledge immediately is that our society, in fact, every society that has ever existed is unjust. I doubt many would argue that. Every society is flawed. Even the social programs aimed at helping the disadvantaged, the weak, the poor, the the hurting, is flawed. Why? Because we have sinners running these things. We have sinners running every government, every every program. And by the way, this is why the church is flawed. We have sinners in charge. As much as we would like to resolve our problem of injustice as a society, we're gonna run into injustice inequity, discrimination, corruption. Why? Because of sin. It's inevitable. Every form of government, no matter what your preference is, has failed. Why? Because of sin. Even the theocratic government that God established in Israel before King Saul failed because sinful people voted God out. The current social justice movement is claiming that there are certain groups of people in our culture that are deprived of power, of prosperity, of position, because they belong to certain people groups. This is no doubt true. The word that is regularly used in this conversation is the word victim. You've heard that, right? We hear it all the time. There are certain people in certain groups who claim that they have been victimized by the rest of society. The categories of victims that we hear from are women, to start with, who have long been abused by men personally and collectively. Is it true that some women have been abused? Certainly, it's true. Then there's the, the category of the poor, who believe that they have been victimized by the wealthy. Is it true that poor have been victimized? Certainly, we have a long history of that. Some ethnic groups who believe that they have long been abused and victimized by other ethnic groups who are in the majority or in power also feel victimized. Have they been? Certainly, unequivocally. There are also groups of people defined by their sexuality who claim victimization by other sexuality groups. The list of victims who have been treated unjustly seems to be growing by the day, of course, if you're paying attention. Many of the self-defined victims are members of multiple groups and the more groups of victims that you belong to, the more authority, evidently, you have to speak on the matter. To be clear, there are many victims. This is what sin does. There are victims of war, genocide, crime, discrimination, hatred, social isolation, domestic violence, and many, many others. Some have been victimized more than others. We are all part of a fallen human race who are steeped in sin, and sin always negatively affects somebody. Sin always victimizes. That's its nature. When you sin against your neighbor, your spouse, your coworker, your child, your friend, you are being unjust and victimizing them. We have all participated in this. The psalmist was a victim of social injustice. Just read, Open the book of Psalms and pick anyone you want, and you'll probably find a record of social injustice. The apostle Paul was a victim and a victimizer. You know his history. Victimization is all around us and always has been around us. Even the church has a well-documented history of victimizing people. In the 20th century, 170 million people died by genocide. That's victimization. Millions more have died in wars and by crime and even by what our country calls legal, abortion. One of the many problems facing the church is how to honestly and biblically deal with this concept of victim or victimization. And of course, confounding the problem that we face as Christians in our day is Christian leaders who claim that unless we address these social inequities in uh, a comprehensive way, we cannot somehow communicate the gospel clearly. These claim that if social justice isn't included in the gospel, we've missed the gospel. And my effort today is simply to answer the question, is that true? Is it true that if we don't pursue the agenda that's being promoted, by Christian and un-Christian alike have we missed the gospel. I want to emphasize up front that we should love all people. I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying. Unfortunately, when you talk about these things, misunderstanding is common. But I want to emphasize right up front and many times throughout this sermon that we should love all people. That's not optional for any Christian. Those we differ from are not enemies, but actually the object of our special love. We are to live justly with everyone. We are to care for everyone and especially ministers minister to those who have been mistreated in any way. Our heart ought to go out to these who live all around us who are daily being mistreated. Jesus himself said that we should be known by our love. Are we, Christian friends? This is what Christians are supposed to be doing. We are to be Jesus' representatives on this planet. The prophet Micah, speaking for God, said this, "'He has told you, O man, what is good, "'and what does the Lord require of you, "'but to do justice, to love kindness, "'and to walk humbly with your God.'" What was Micah saying? What was God saying through Micah? Here's what our lives ought to be about. Love people and love God. We've heard that before, haven't we? Yeah. In addition to this, acknowledging that people are unjustly treated, I also want to carefully say here at the outset that social justice, philosophically and practically, is not part, at least biblically, of the gospel message. I hope that doesn't lose some of you because of your predispositions about how the church at large has failed in many ways to address the needs of those hurting around us. But from a purely biblical and doctrinal perspective, social justice not only isn't part of the gospel, but social justice in one of its main tenets actually undermines the gospel and unknowingly builds barriers to understanding the gospel. So please, friends, stay with me as I try to explain this because I think you'll see the truth of this and why it's so important to get right. We must strain towards this. As I begin, I want to acknowledge my predispositions, my biases, starting with my heritage. I'm a white middle-class male, if that weren't obvious to you. In today's dialogue, this puts me in a category that automatically is at a disadvantage because of my advantages. I acknowledge that I have intrinsic predispositions about many things. My intellect, my opinions are all limited by my experience. I have existed in a certain environment, as have you and everyone else. I was raised in a racially and socially diverse third world country. My parents were missionaries to Ecuador. But just because it was a third world country and racially diverse didn't mean that it didn't struggle with racism. Racism was rampant in Ecuador when I was there. The Ecuadorian natives would regularly be denied public transportation, admittance to stores, banks, and sporting events. The Spanish ruling class would regularly refer to them in ethnically derisive terms. I say that just to to help you see that racism is not unique to America. North America to United States of America, nor is it unique to our time. Remember the way the Jews viewed the Samaritans and the way the Romans viewed the Jews. Remember the way the Jews viewed the Gentiles? Remember the way the Romans viewed everybody else in the world? You remember the way the Egyptians viewed the Jews? Racism racism is part of human DNA. We have a struggle with ethnic pride, and we have had this struggle as a human race since Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. But back to my heritage, my siblings and I were trained from an early age that everyone, no matter what their skin color or nationality, were equal and of eternal value to God. I think, at least I perceived, that was the reason we went to Ecuador as missionaries. Since we were missionaries, we ministered to Ecuadorian natives, as well as those of Ecuadorian Spanish descent and Ecuadorian African descent. The school I attended in Ecuador included all kinds of ethnic diversity. I had Asian friends, Brazilian friends, Colombian friends, Chilean friends, Ecuadorian friends, black friends, white friends. That was my normal. I didn't know any different. But more important than my heritage in shaping my opinions, hopefully, is not so much my heritage, but my view of Scripture. God's Word, in my view, is inerrant. God's Word is perspicuous, means it's understandable. God's word is the final authority on all subjects of life and faith. And so I pray that my opinions are formed by scripture way more than my heritage. Although I don't deny that both are involved. So let's look at this social justice and the gospel. To begin thinking about social justice and the gospel, we need to think first of all about social justice in God. The intrinsic value of every human life is made clear from Scripture. You can't get 27 verses into the scriptures, the story of creation, to discover that God made every human being in his own image. That alone creates value in every human life. It doesn't matter if you're male or female, black or white, or any shade of brown in between. Your value doesn't depend on whether or not you're gay or straight, Republican or Democrat, liberal or conservative, born or unborn. Every human life has intrinsic God-given value. We learn that on the first pages of Scripture because we know that God placed his image into every human being. He values each and every one of us, and he doesn't like it when we mistreat one another in any way. He speaks against that kind of thing all the time in Scripture. God hates injustice of every form throughout human history. The injustice of George Floyd's death, God hates the injustice of how Hispanics have been treated over the past 150 years in the United States, the injustice of how the Jews have been treated over the past 2,000 years all over the world, the injustice of American history, including the unjust ways the slaves were treated in the 16th and 17th centuries, and the way the American natives were treated during the 16th through the 20th centuries, or 21st century. The unjust way the conquistadores treated the Central and South American natives, God hates or hated. The unjust way the very First Nation residents of North America treated each other 500 to 5,000 years ago. God hates these things. God hates injustice. And for our day, for you and I, God hates the unjust way that we may treat each other on a daily basis. And I think that has a significant point here that I want you to hear. We can talk all day about the injustices of the past. God cares about how you and I are treating each other today. So let's look at social justice in the gospel particularly. So the question isn't whether or not God cares about social justice, he unequivocally does. The question is whether or not social justice is part of the gospel, again, as I've said earlier. I think the Bible clearly communicates that it is not part of the gospel. In fact, as I mentioned, I think that social justice as a philosophy does serious harm to the mission that we've been called to as a church. I, I, I am doing my best with fear and trembling to walk through these important truths, Sun Valley Church, because first of all, I love you. I love God's word. I want you to think biblically about things in our day and age so that you can be effective, joyful gospel partners. The philosophy that underpins social justice is a serious roadblock to the gospel and we desperately want our friends to understand the gospel, don't we? We don't want to put any kind of roadblocks in the way of our friends hearing clearly the gospel and responding to the grace and forgiveness found in Jesus Christ. So please hear me. I am not saying that people have not been and are not being mistreated. They are. They have been. A God-honoring response to the gospel would be to begin to treat people as image bearers of God. That is one of the first signs of a regenerated heart. I begin to love people. Here is where we must turn to the scriptures, though, to start thinking biblically about this current issue. And I'd ask you to turn your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 18. Ezekiel chapter 18. I heard the sermon preached a few years back, um, and it was so powerful that it's just stuck in my mind. And since the, the recent occurrences have been becoming uh, so intense this particular sermon was recalled to my memory, and I am basically going from that sermon to help you understand this important issue of social justice. Ezekiel chapter 18 that you had read to you earlier, we're gonna find out God's mind on this issue. And by the way, just in case you think I'm diving into some obscure passage to support my bias, I assure you that the prophet Ezekiel is stating the same things in Ezekiel 18 that the whole Bible supports, which I'm gonna try to demonstrate for you. But if you'll look at Ezekiel 18, verse four, look at what it says. The prophet says, behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. The soul who sins shall die. I'm going to refer back to this occasionally to help you understand the flow of Ezekiel's message but just to kind of give you an update Ezekiel was in Babylon as a captive along with many other Jews there were three different deportations from Israel to Babylon uh, the Babylonians had come in and defeated the Israelites or the the people of Judah and Benjamin and were carrying them carrying them off into captivity in the first deportation was in 605 BC, the second was in 597, and the final was in 586. Well, Ezekiel was brought in in the second deportation, and he was preaching to people who had been there, and then still preaching to those who were coming in as they were brought into captivity. So essentially, Ezekiel was a prisoner of war who was preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ to the people in Babylon, the Jews in Babylon. And so God used Ezekiel to communicate to his people why they were in Babylon. What has happened? Why are we here? Ezekiel's sermons recorded in his book were sermons of God's judgment on the people for their sin. The main thrust of his sermon series, and the book of Ezekiel is just a copy of his sermon series, the main thrust of this book is what I just read to you from verse four of chapter 18, the soul that sins shall die. He emphasizes again and again that sin has consequences. The apostle Paul said the same thing. Do you remember in Romans chapter six, verse 23? The wages of sin is what? Death, yes, you got that. Ezekiel and Paul believed that sin required God's judgment. This is a basic element to the gospel message sin is a big problem and it incurs god's judgment ezekiel wasn't speaking out of turn or suggesting something novel no the same truth god's truth in the gospel was mentioned all the way back in deuteronomy chapter 24 verse 16. it says this moses wrote this fathers shall not be put to death because of their children nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers each one shall be put to death for his own sin, Deuteronomy twenty-four sixteen. look it up. Is that statement clear to you from Deuteronomy 24? It should be, people will be judged for their own sin is what Moses said, is what God had Moses write, what God had Ezekiel preach, what God had uh, uh, Paul write. Everyone will be judged based on his own sinful actions, not the actions of somebody else. That is a clear, basic gospel truth. You get that wrong, you're gonna get the gospel wrong. This is, an, this is very important to understand, as you can imagine. This is fundamental to the gospel message. Moses said it, Ezekiel said it, Paul said it, Jesus said it. Do you remember when Jesus said this? He said, you will die in your sins. Jesus didn't say, you're gonna die because of your neighbor's sin, your father's sin, your grandfather's sin, or anybody else's sin. You'll die because of your sin. In the same way that the gospel cannot be accepted by family groups, hey, my whole family are Christians, I guess I am too. Hey, I was born in America, I guess I'm a Christian. No, in that same way, no one can accept the gospel or be considered a true, genuine Christian. In the same way, only individuals can be responsibility for sin. All right? You you can't be under the load of someone else's sin from a biblical perspective. It only rests on individuals. And there are many examples of this all over the Bible. Even in shared judgment, I know some of your minds are working overtime right now, and that's good. In shared judgment, like the nation of Israel, when they were taken to Babylon. Are you telling me, Pastor John, that every one of those people was a sinner? Yes, without a doubt. They were being punished for their own sin. How about the worldwide flood? How many people were saved in that whole deal? What, eight? Noah, his wife, and his three sons and their wives? Eight people were saved? Are you telling me that the million others that lived on this planet were guilty? Yes. That's what Genesis 6 says. They were each being judged and guilty of personal sin against God. You may ask, if you're still thinking with me, well, what about Exodus 20, verse five? Let me read it for you. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. I have two responses or two answers to this question that will help set that aside for you for the time being. First of all, the visitation of iniquity in subsequent sinful generation is dependent on those who hate me. Did you hear what God said in Exodus 25? I'm gonna visit the iniquities of the father, children and third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Not on those who follow me and love me and obey me. No, on those who hate me. Secondly, the word fathers in in Exodus 20 verse five is plural referring to a generation of leaders, fathers of the nation. If we continue in the sins of our fathers, the fathers of our nation as the people of Israel did, we will be guilty of the sins they committed as well. Why? Because we're doing the same things. The circumstances or judgments that accompany their sinful rebellion would also accompany us unless we change. This means that the constructors of our culture in America, past generations, have massive influence and responsibility for the conditions of our present culture. And I think this prompts us to think a little bit clearly about what we pass on to our children and grandchildren. The sins of one generation create the culture and the corruption in which subsequent, subsequent generations have to fight through and struggle with. An example of this, of course, that we all understand is the sin of Adam. If it weren't for Adam, well, let me say this in a side note, if it weren't for Adam, it would have been the next guy, all right, we understand that the sin of Adam has affected all of us. We are all facing death because of the sin of Adam. His sin has caused all of us to be born into sin, unable and unwilling to submit to God. Adam's sin was passed on to every one of us, but this doesn't mean that anyone will be sent to hell for Adam's sin, the Bible does not teach that. The Bible teaches that every one of us is personally accountable to God for our own sin. Jesus said, you will die in your sin. You remember what Paul said in Romans 5 when he was talking about the sin of Adam? Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that is Adam, and death through sin. And so death, listen, death spread to all men. Why? Is it because Adam sinned? No, Paul said because all sin." The reason you and I die is not because Adam sins, it's because you and I sin. We are culpable. We're responsible. We're guilty. My sin is my sin. Your sin is your sin. My sin is not your sin, nor is your grandpa's sin your sin. No one finds themselves in hell because of Adam's sin or grandpa's sin. No one will stand judgment for the sins of anyone but their own. This means that no one will stand in judgment before God for the sins of past generations. Here's why this issue is pertinent to us Bible-believing, concerned citizen Christians, gospel partner Christians. I want to say this as gently as I can. No one is a victim from God's perspective. Are there victims from a human perspective? Certainly. I've already established that. From God's perspective, as it relates to responsibility for sin, no one is a victim. We each, by our own free will, rebel against God and his laws. The reason that we will die, every soul that sins will die, you will die in your sins, the reason that we all must die is because I have personally rebelled against God. Friends, we are all stiff-necked just like the people that Ezekiel was preaching to, but they didn't want to take responsibility for their own sin. This is why God sent Ezekiel to preach to them so that they wouldn't miss a critical gospel point. They wanted to blame the generations before them. Look how this chapter starts in chapter 18, verses one through four. The word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel wrote. What do you mean by repeating the proverb? God is speaking to the people of Israel who are complaining about having to pay for the sins of their forefathers. What do you mean God's asking the people of Israel by repeating the proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Now listen, it's God's response to that, okay? The fathers have eaten the grapes, but the children have to pay for it. The the fathers have sinned, but the children have to pay for their sin is what the complaint was from the people of Israel. Now verse three, as I live declares the Lord, This proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. They had said it so much in Babylon and in Israel to those who were yet to come into Babylon as captives, it became a proverb. It was so common. God is saying, Stop it. Stop using that proverb. It's not true. Behold, verse 4 that we're focusing on this morning. All souls are mine, the soul of the Father, as well as the soul of the Son. The soul that sins shall die. There are no victims. There's no innocent. There's none of that. Friends, if sinners are allowed to blame someone else for their circumstances, mostly blame others for their own failure, their own sin, they are being inoculated from the gospel. We can have no part in that as gospel partners. I am not saying that people of Israel weren't in captivity because of the poor choices of their rulers and the leaders on days gone by, but Ezekiel's point and my point this morning is that the soul that sins shall die. We are each responsible for our own sin before God. This critical gospel point is that no one is a victim, victim from God's perspective. No one gets a free pass because of what was done to them or their forefathers. We must each take responsibility for our own sin. This is an elementary, basic, introductory gospel truth. And it has many ramifications. Let me mention one. We believe that God is sovereign, do we not? We, We do here at Sun Valley Church at least. God has ordained your life in every way. He has placed you in the family you're in, the culture you're in, the generation you're in, and the century you're in. But if you claim victim status because of your circumstances or the circumstances of others in your extended family, you're behaving just like Adam and Eve did in the garden when they were confronted with their sin. Do you remember that story in the Garden of Eden when God confronted the sin of Adam and Eve? Their response was classic, typical. They began the whole thing. When God confronted Eve, what did she say? It was that talking snake that you put in the garden that was at fault here. And then God turned to Adam and said, why did you sin? Why did you do what I told you not to do? And what was Adam's response? Basically the same as Eve's. Instead of saying the snake, Adam said, God, it was that woman you gave me. No, they, they both claimed to be victims of something or someone else. They were trying to deflect their own responsibility for their sin before God. Ultimately, and this is the important part I want you to hear, They were blaming God for their sin. It was that tricky snake you put in the garden, God. If you wouldn't have made a talking snake, I would have never been fooled. And then Adam, if you wouldn't have given me that woman, I would have been fine. Adam and Eve were placing the blame for their sin at God's feet. And this is how fallen human nature operates, always. I'm a victim of mean people, rich people, other people. I am what I am because of my circumstances, my heritage. Ultimately, it's God's fault. It's God's fault. And so, Christian friends, what are we God-loving, Bible-believing, others-oriented, people-loving, gospel partners, to think about these things? Do we cow to the prevailing din from our society because of the massive pressure that's being applied to us to do so? Or do we lovingly, humbly, for the sake of our friends and for the sake of the gospel and the glory of Christ, stand up and say, that is incorrect. Friends, being able to understand the gospel is at stake. Not our understanding of the gospel primarily, but the understanding of those who need to hear the loving gospel of Jesus Christ, which begins at the point of guilt. They must understand that they have offended God by their sin. If they don't get that, they don't get the gospel. Friends, being able to understand the gospel is at stake. Think of Joseph. Remember back to Joseph. If anyone was treated unjustly, it was Joseph. Did he blame his brothers? Did he blame God? No, not at all. If we cave in and agree that the conditions of all the victims in our world is a legitimate excuse to to escape personal responsibility before God, we have misrepresented the gospel. If we say, oh, it's true, you've been victimized and treated unjustly, we sympathize, we see, we understand, we apologize, we want to embrace the whole story so that you feel loved and accepted and heard. Is that what we're supposed to say? I want to suggest that is as close to saying that their legitimate victimization doesn't matter. It could be hardly a worse response if we want to see them in heaven to embrace Jesus and his gospel. Many have actually been severely mistreated both personally and as people groups. Acknowledging that and trying to rectify any ongoing unjust circumstances is good and God-glorifying, but saying that victims have no personal responsibility because of their circumstances isn't the solution and, in fact, blocks the solution. It would be better to offer the gospel that says, listen closely, I love you. I'm sorry for what has happened, but the soul that sins shall die. The way forward is not to join the social clamor to include these things in the gospel in our church purpose statement or anything else christian but to call everyone back to their personal responsibility before god for sin and to run to jesus christ for forgiveness the only sins that will eternally impact you are the ones that you commit if you do not know jesus Jesus is the only one who can forgive those sins and restore you to a loving relationship with the Creator. Jesus is the only one who can reconcile you to God. Human nature, like Adam and Eve demonstrated, wants to deflect the responsibility and say, I'm actually a good person. There's just a bunch of bad people around me who have created all these problems for me. It's all been done to me, I'm actually innocent. I'm a victim of gender preference, oppression, economics, ethnic injustices, etc. but in my heart of hearts, I'm actually really a good person. The first thing that Jesus said in his very first sermon was this, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is the kingdom of God. Those who experience God's forgiveness and enter his kingdom are those who recognize their own spiritual poverty and take responsibility for their sin. No one else gets in. So why must we reject victim mentality and the connection between the social gospel and, 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 or social justice and the gospel? Because we want to see these dear people in heaven. That's why we must reject this philosophy. The only way to get to heaven is to take personal responsibility for your sin and run to Jesus with it. The second you blame someone else for your circumstances or your own sin, you're roadblocking the gospel. At the bottom of claiming injustice, abuse, and victimization is blaming God for my circumstances, laying the guilt at his feet. And if God is to blame for my bad circumstances, why on earth would I ever go to the one who has created such problems for me to begin with? Why would I run to God For help if he's the one who caused my problems can you see how important it is to get this right Christian friend the gospel is at stake souls are at stake when we agree with the underlying philosophy of victimization we are complicit in undermining a fundamental aspect of the gospel One of the reasons that Pastor Rick and I have decided to take this risky foray into this sensitive matter is because these attitudes and opinions have made their way into the church, even Sun Valley Church, which saddens us. We want you to think biblically about everything, especially those things that have direct impact on the mission to which we were called, which is to lovingly, tirelessly, and humbly share the good news of Jesus Christ with everyone around us. A good, loving doctor will not say, yeah, you've got cancer, I understand, I sympathize, but let's try a Band-Aid. No, the gospel makes no sense if I'm not responsible for my sin. If I have an alternate way to explain my attitudes and my actions, I'll take it every time because that is what we humans do. We skirt, we deflect, we run, we hide. We just don't take responsibility. But because of love, we we cannot allow that. We have the answer. Sun Valley Christians, we have the answer. We have the answer to everything that's going sideways in our world today. You, Christian friend, and me have the answer. Let's be the mouthpiece of Jesus. Let's actually love people by telling them the truth. Agreeing that anyone has been mistreated, doesn't get them to heaven. I'm going to spend some time this next few days thinking about, praying about how far I wanna go into this because there's more, I think quite a bit more that's important to understanding the gospel in this particular subject of social justice. So I'd ask you, Sun Valley Church, dear friends, to pray for me, pray with me as I seek God's heart and will on the matter. Pray also for Sun Valley Church, if you will, while you're praying. Pray that we'll be a light in the darkness. Pray that we'll stand for truth and that we'll do so lovingly and humbly. Pray that God will use us to bring a voice of hope to what is becoming a growing, hopeless situation in our day and age. Pray for each other also, that we'll be good gospel partners, embracing the truth, thinking clearly about the truth and communicating the truth. These are sensitive things to navigate. I acknowledge that. I pray I haven't come across too harshly. I don't wanna do that. I just have a passion for the gospel. I want you to understand it. I want you to understand the things that impact it, impact you as Christians. So uh, I'm gonna trust God that that you've heard my heart that you've heard the truths of scripture, and that he will use these things to encourage you to walk as a light in the darkness, to walk as a gospel partner for those who deeply need Jesus. Pray with me. Oh, dear Heavenly Father, we acknowledge the weakness of our minds and hearts as we face these daunting questions and serious issues in our culture. Uh, We, we are so easily confused and derailed. I ask that you would have mercy on us, and as you have mercy on us, help us to understand truth so that we may clearly communicate it with love to those who so desperately need it. Bless us as a church, Father, as we seek you, as we want to please you and honor you in all that we do and say. I pray that that Sun Valley Church will, in fact, be a voice of hope that, that we will be a, a, a bastion of love to those around us, that they will see Jesus because of our overflowing love for them. Oh, God, use us, please. And I pray this in your name. Amen.